This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips. Thanks for downloading the latest Rear Vision podcast. And if you enjoy it, please share it and rate us. You can also email us or leave a comment on the website. Exactly 10 years ago, Lehman Brothers, one of America's largest banks, collapsed, threatening the entire global financial system. We're still living with the fallout. It's the nightmare on Wall Street that few experts dreamt was possible. A year ago, those who predicted that giant investment banks would fail were dismissed as madmen. Today, in the early hours of the morning in New York, the venerable firm Lehman Brothers announced that it would file for bankruptcy. I can tell you from the bankers, the executives and other folks who have been on Wall Street for years that this weekend they were the most terrified, scared that they've ever been for the financial system. Before filing for bankruptcy, Lehman Brothers had been one of the biggest investment banks in the US. Its collapse was followed by a full-blown global panic of a sort not seen since the Wall Street crash of 1929. On Rear Vision, we'll look at the global financial crisis, the GFC, and where we find ourselves a decade on. It was a crisis in two parts, with roots that lay in home loan lending in the United States dating back to the 1990s. Richard Holden is Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School. So the first phase, the really deep, long causal phase, was the US mortgage market. So there were a lot of very, very bad loans that were written in the US home loan market over a long period of time. And this is often referred to as the subprime crisis. Basically, it's no more complicated than if you've seen the movie The Big Short or read the book, which was that a bunch of mortgage brokers helped with a bunch of banks in the United States giving loans to people who couldn't afford to pay them back and certainly couldn't afford to pay them back if the interest rates went up. And that went on for a long period of time. And then you started to see defaults tick up. When those defaults got to a certain level, it meant that the banks that had often not only packaged up these mortgages as mortgage-backed securities kinds of bonds, not only had uh, sold a lot of those off, they'd kept a lot on their books. And all of a sudden, when those things tanked, their collateral for their loans went down. And there was essentially, and this is the second phase that you referred to, there was essentially uh, a kind of modern day bank run on, on banks like Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. There's a lot of complicated politics around this in the United States. Helen Thompson is Professor of Political Economy in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge University. One of the things that's true about mortgage-financed housing in the United States is that there's quite a lot of involvement of the federal government in it, going back to the 1930s and the New Deal institutions that were created by Roosevelt's administration. The effect of the way in which those federal institutions worked in terms of mortgage finance was to create a situation where the rates of home ownership among whites were very significantly higher than they were amongst Hispanics and African-Americans who were effectively shut out of support from the federal state for mortgage finance to support for home ownership. So in part, you can see subprime, which was encouraged by both the Clinton administration and the Bush Jr. administration in the 1990s and the early 2000s as a way of trying to address the imbalance in home ownership in the United States. I think that also meant that it was quite difficult for people to make arguments that basically said, look, there's something wrong here 
in terms of what the financial consequences of this are likely to be, because it actually was supporting a desirable public policy goal. Jared Dillian was a trader for Lehman Brothers from 2001 to 2008 and wrote about his experiences in Street Freak, a memoir of money and madness. Throughout Wall Street, basically what was going on at the time was people found that it was profitable to issue mortgages to people with bad credit quality. You know, as credit ratings go in the United States, a prime credit rating is 730 and higher. And traditionally, that was the point at which if you were below that number, you couldn't get a mortgage. And, you know, people found that it was profitable to sell mortgages to people with lower credit quality. You just had to charge them higher interest rates. And these mortgages were known as subprime. And they got very large. I want to say at the peak in 2006, there were about 1.3 trillion of subprime mortgages outstanding. You know, and if you look at somebody with a credit rating that's in the low 600s or the high 500s, I mean, these are people who, you know, who have judgments against them, who have missed a lot of payments, who have accounts and collection. You know, these are. These are not good borrowers. You know, it wasn't just Lehman. All the banks were issuing mortgages of subprime quality at the time. Bundles of these dodgy home loans were parceled together to make them look like sound investments. That is really the work of the credit rating agencies is, is that you have a situation where basically that these subprime mortgage-backed securities were being treated for investment purposes as if they were the same as treasury bonds, say, for instance, which was just absurd. But if you have a market that gets to a certain point, then for anybody to basically turn around and say, look, the emperor's got no clothes, there's something, you know, like mad here, becomes problematic. And indeed, the people who made a lot of money, though, out of the financial crisis were those who were willing, actually, to call what was going on and say, look, this just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The other thing is, is there's conflicts of interest. And it's not simply straightforwardly the case that the credit rating agencies and the financial corporations were simply blind to the risk that they were creating. There was plenty of incentives for them in the way in which the credit rating agencies worked in relation to the financial corporations that ensured that there were good reasons for making money out of turning a blind eye. House prices in the US had peaked in 2006 and the number of borrowers who missed their repayments began to rise. Lenders and investors saw that the houses they repossessed were worth less than the outstanding loans and the value of mortgage-backed securities began to fall. The second phase of the global financial crisis was underway. We had investment banks like Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, that were very highly leveraged, often more than 30 to 1 in terms of the amount of debt compared to equity that they had. And two things happened. They had some of these mortgage-backed securities on their books, so the value of their equity went down. And the second thing was that their debt was often very, very short term. So it had to be rolled over, if you like, re-lent to them often on a 24-hourly basis for big chunks of it. And there are two major markets in the United States, the so-called repo market or repurchase obligation market and the commercial paper market, where it's very short-term debt and often needs to be rolled over, as I say, on 24- or 48-hour basis. Those markets froze up because people got worried. Something unexpected and bad had happened, which is these mortgage-backed securities were defaulting. And people say, well, I want my money back. I'm not lending it out to you anymore. And that's what caused this kind of modern-day bank run on, say, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. So it wasn't one of these 1930s-era ones where people were lining up outside trying to get their cash back, but it had the same kind of economic principles. It was different lenders 
saying we want our money back in the repo or commercial paper market, and that meant that these banks couldn't operate. In March 2008, Bear Stearns, a smaller investment bank, had failed. Jared Dillian, who was working at Lehman at the time, says that the bigger bank had a lot of real estate on its books. Its exposure to subprime mortgages, mortgages and residential real estate was much larger as a proportion of their business than it was at the other banks. I mean, Lehman was known as a bank that specialized in mortgage finance. Also, Lehman had a very large portfolio of actual physical real estate. The real estate investment bankers had acquired about $40 billion worth of actual buildings, land, condos, stuff around the world. And physical real estate is impossible to liquidate during a downturn. What was it like working there in the lead up to the middle of September? It was a bit strange. Our clients would tell us outside of working hours that Lehman was screwed, that we were going to go bankrupt. And at the same time, you know, management was giving us a completely different story. You know, even on the day before the bankruptcy, Dick Fold came down to the trading floor and gave a speech where he said he would get the stock up to 150 bucks. It wasn't really a deception. It was really a delusion. And a lot of the folks in senior management that disagreed with Dick Fold and Joe Gregory about the condition of the firm and said that they should reduce their exposure to real estate, you know, those folks left the firm because they weren't being listened to. There was a guy named Mike Gelband who left in 2006, and he was brought back a couple of months before the bankruptcy to try and fix it, but it was too late. So there were there were voices at the firm that were warning against this, that were trying to be heard, but they were being marginalised. This afternoon in Australia, not long after midnight in New York, the newswires began flashing the story of what could be the trigger for a Black Monday. The venerable Wall Street investment bank Lehman Brothers announced that it intended to file for bankruptcy. Before the official announcement, workers exiting the Lehman offices told the story. It sucks. People are drinking beer and smoking inside. And so is the feeling that bankruptcy is inevitable now? Is that the concern? I think so. And there'll be more. There'll be more. What happened on the day that it went bankrupt? You know, I got to work about the usual time. As I was walking up to the building, there had to be about 20 TV trucks around the building. There were reporters in front of the building that were trying to interview people. And I got inside. You know, we were instructed not to trade anything, that we we couldn't do anything. So basically, we just sat there and kind of watched the news about us. We sat there and watched TV. This actually, it lasted longer than one day. People kept coming into work for an entire week because they didn't really know what else to do. The firm was bankrupt. People were holding out hope that there would be an acquirer that would buy what was left of Lehman Brothers. And as it turns out, on Friday of that week, that's actually what happened. Barclays Bank bought the broker-dealer portion of Lehman out of bankruptcy, I think, for $2 billion. And the purpose of that was to close that deal very quickly so the employees didn't scatter and go to other firms. So most of Lehman actually survived as a part of Barclays. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National RN. 
On the 10th anniversary of the collapse of the US investment bank Lehman Brothers, we're hearing about the global financial crisis of 2008 and its legacy. Well, Lehman Brothers itself really triggered the global panic in full at that point. And it not only marked a a freezing up of the credit markets, but because Lehman Brothers was so interconnected with other banks and financial institutions, really called into question the whole financial system. So it was a day I remember very well. uh, I was in the US at the University of Chicago at the time, where Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, the kind of diamond names of the US financial sector, you know, were down 40%. Uh, in terms of their stock price in early morning trading on a particular day. And there was a very real chance that Goldman Sachs was going to go under. And at that point, if Goldman Sachs went under, you know, things were really bad. I remember talking to a senior administration official in the Obama administration who's a person not taken to uh, overstatements. And when I asked this person, what do you think people should do? The response was, go get cash and bottled water because I don't think ATMs are going to open on Monday morning. It was that bad. The global financial system essentially froze. Yeah, I think freezing is a good way to describe what happened. If you look at all the banks and other financial corporations that were at the epicentre of the financial crisis, the one thing that they've got in common is being shut out of the funding markets on which they depended. If you go back the previous summer to one of the relatively small British banks, Northern Rock, that's what happened to that too. That is the common thread that runs through the banks and other financial corporations that were caught up in the financial crisis. And part of that came about because at a certain point, nobody had got any idea what risk was any longer. And nobody knew how much bad debt any of these banks held. Well, it wasn't just the bad debt that they held, it was the bad assets that they held as well. Because of the ways in which you know various things were kept off banks' balance sheets, the investors would have been talking about lending to banks where they couldn't actually know, for instance, what the volume of mortgage-backed securities that they actually were holding were. Banks, including the US Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, cut their rates overnight in a bid to bolster the shaken financial system. Key central banks around the world acted in unison overnight to cut interest rates. They keep on bailing out and bailing out, but the ship's still sinking. Authorities are trying anything and everything. That's one thing which may save us from the Great Depression of the 1930s when there was no such uh, international cooperation and such uh, activist uh, policies. As central banks around the world cut interest rates, many governments bailed out their banks and started spending programs to keep their economies alive. Well, ultimately, the response was twofold. It was national governments bailing their banks out when they could, providing financial support to them. And at the same time, in the case, as I say, of a number of of European countries, having to rely on the Federal Reserve Board to support their banks as well. The European banks turned out to be pretty significant purchasers of mortgage-backed securities. So they built up a lot of, let's call them American assets, dollar assets on their balance sheet, and they were funded by dollar liabilities. And once they found themselves shut out of short-term dollar money markets, the only institution that could come to the rescue was the Federal Reserve Board. In the United States, you have this mixed response because on the one hand, the Fed and the Treasury let two of the American investment banks, because Bear Stearns had effectively been allowed to go bankrupt earlier in the year, earlier in 2008, I mean by that, and then Lehman Brothers too, whilst at the same time, 
it rescued other banks and other financial corporations like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The Australian government responded, as many did, with a stimulus package, but there was a previously unidentified vulnerability in our system, which fortunately was quickly resolved. One of the reactions in Australia was to start looking at, at our banking system, you know, with the big four banks here subject to the same kind of things. And the big four banks here actually did have quite a lot of their funding, not just from deposits, which are potentially more stable, but from these money markets, these overseas money markets, including the US money market. So they were under a lot of pressure. And then the government and the Reserve Bank woke up to the fact that in Australia, unlike the US, deposits weren't guaranteed in Australia. So if you had money in one of the big four banks and one of the big four banks went bust and you were a depositor, you lost all your money at that point. The US, since the Great Depression experience, since the 1930s, had a thing called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, that guaranteed sort of, if you like, mum and dad deposits up to $100,000. And that meant that there was no incentive for ordinary folks to go and try and yank their money out of, say, Bank of America or something like that. In Australia, that wasn't the case. And so the government had to get pretty quickly on to putting in that guarantee just by an announcement so that there wasn't a bank run in Australia and through some combination of relatively quick action. And I think the Rudd government deserves, and probably Kevin Rudd himself actually, deserves a great deal of credit for acting so swiftly on this and understanding what was going on. And that kind of swift action combined with a good dose of dumb luck helped Australia avoid a similar fate to, say, Lehman or Bear Stearns. The federal government's announced a one-off payment for pensioners in December. It's part of a $10.5 billion plan to pump money into the economy to combat the global slowdown. He's delivering one-off payments of at least $1,000 in December to pensioners and families, hoping they will spend and keep the economy moving and prevent too many job losses. If you are to learn anything from economic history, it is this. At a time when economies need stimulus support, don't leave it too late. The idea was to supply as much money as is possible to give people the assurance that they won't be the last ones with money in when things seize up. Peter Martin is business and economy editor at The Conversation. There were low interest rates that had the uh, immediate effect of giving people with mortgages and so on much more money to spend. In one hit, they went down 1.25%. Extraordinary. Biggest drop on record. There was that. There was also the go early, go hard, go households dumping of $800 per household, then another $800 later. That helped money float in the economy. The key lesson that was learned was don't do what happened in the Wall Street crash of 1929. What happened then and what brought on the Great Depression and made it a Great Depression was that when governments were running short of money and when businesses were running short of money, they cut their costs. Now, as they cut their costs, as businesses laid people off because people weren't spending, and as governments withdrew social benefits because they thought they could no longer afford them, people spent less and then they did it more and more and, and so on. The great contribution of John Maynard Keynes, one of the founders of modern economics, was to point out that this was a self-defeating idea that would lead to a spiral downwards. Governments around the world had learnt that lesson. They'd been hanging on to the knowledge for 50, 60 years after the Second World War, that what they had to do was not 
what happened in the Great Depression and was to do the exact opposite. What happened as a result of all this government intervention? Australia kept standards of living high with just a mere blip. In the US, it was the best part of a decade before things recovered. Wages in the US have only recently started to be higher than they were before the crisis because wages fell. They can fall in the US. In Europe, mainland Europe, things got bad during the crisis. They got better because they did more or less the right things. And then, as they decided it was time for austerity, they got much, 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 much worse. China, because uh, there's government control there, or the government has the ability to control things if it really wants to, they were able to make sure that almost nothing happened to the economy. But we are, more so than New Zealand, more so than any other country, probably along with China, the country which weathered things most successfully. This is a very complicated question because on the one hand, what happened after the recessions that came with the financial crisis, though I think you could argue that the origins of the recessions came before the financial crisis and actually had a great deal really to do with the rise in oil prices that was also taking place in the run-up to 2008. What we've seen in the United States and Britain and some of the Eurozone economies is basically a period of the best part of a decade of recovery in the sense that growth has come back and there hasn't been more recession. That isn't the case for all of the Eurozone countries, some of which went back into recession in 2011. Indeed, the Eurozone, if you take it as an aggregate, went back into recession from 2011 to early 2013. But I would say the overall picture with the obviously not true for individual countries like Greece, has been a period of growth, but rather sluggish growth, and one in which the amount of growth that has taken place has been supported by extraordinarily loose monetary policies or extraordinary expansionary monetary policies, not only quantitative easing, but pretty much zero interest rates for most of that time, though the Fed has now significantly moved away from them being zero, but other central banks have not done so. For instance, the European Central Bank is still effectively running a negative interest rate policy. In a world beset by volatility, uncertainty and ball tampering, there is at least one comforting constant, Australia's official cash rate. The Reserve Bank has done nothing for 20 months, the longest stretch of inaction since the cash rate was introduced in 1990. And today's statement suggests they'll continue doing nothing because inflation is tame. In the years since the global financial crisis, interest rates have fallen still further in Australia and around the world. Perpetual record low interest rates have become a feature of the post-GFC world. Well, I think that there have been several different consequences to it. One of them is what it's done in financial markets and to asset prices. So you can see the effects of the central bank's monetary policies in the very high share prices that we've seen over a lot of the period, probably since about 2011 in particular. And you can also see in certain very internationalised cities, you can see really rapid rises in house prices, essentially in response to hot money flows coming in to them, not entirely, but sometimes from Chinese investors looking for a return. So 
because the return to capital in anything other than asset prices has been so poor with interest rates so low, you can see that effectively the allocation of capital, if we could call it that, is being largely determined by what central banks are doing. So I think that's one of the reasons why the recovery, if you like, in the real economy has been as paltry and as sluggish as it has been, because there hasn't been a great deal of investment generated by these investment in the real economy, I mean by that, the productive economy generated by these extremely low interest rates. Low interest rates aren't doing what they should. The idea of low interest rates is that uh, businesses will find it more worthwhile to borrow because it's cheaper to borrow, so they'll be more adventurous on projects and so on. That hasn't happened. No one quite knows why business in Australia and in the US really haven't been taking advantage of the very low rates. You have to ask yourself, if businesses don't borrow when the official cash rate is 1.5%, when would they borrow? We're in a malaise at the moment where the traditional means of encouraging business to do things isn't working. People are buying shares in businesses which aren't opening new factories. Indeed, when businesses get money, they often now return it to their shareholders. They give them a gift. That's part of what's happened in the US with the the Trump tax cuts. There's a, a scarring effect of the crisis, which has made business more wary. And the fact that money is cheap, the fact that people will buy shares in the company doesn't really seem to change that. You, you don't see a business like Woolworths or any other one wanting to expand massively, even though money's cheap. The last 10 years have also been a period of low wages growth. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's striking is is that we've seen a long recovery in most Western economies without seeing any significant growth in wages. Now, you could argue that that's in part a phenomenon that predates the financial crisis, but I think it certainly looks like it's been intensified by what has happened since. I think you can also ask some questions on the employment side. So, for instance, if you take the United States, unemployment has moved to a very low level yet at the same time that the labour participation rate, essentially measuring those who are working, has not improved in anything like the same way as the unemployment rate has, which might suggest that actually there's quite a bit of hidden unemployment still happening. And that's before we even get to the question of how precarious or not some of the employment that has been generated since the crisis is. Low interest rates, sluggish growth and low wages growth. That's the legacy of the GFC. What might lie ahead? I think that that's the question that nobody really can, doesn't even really know how to think about because it's such unprecedented territory that we've really been in since the crisis. I mean, there just isn't a parallel for the world's central banks to have acted as they've done since 2008. And so one of the things it looks like it's doing is it's kind of creating a kind of economic cycle of the kind that we haven't really seen before. If you look at cycles in the past in terms of growth and recession, certainly in the case of the American economy, I think you would have expected a recession to have occurred again by now, and yet it hasn't. So then the question becomes, well, is it the case that actually these monetary policies can keep cycles going, economic cycles going, business cycles going much longer than anybody previously 
anticipated. I think that's quite possibly the case, but that doesn't mean that these cycles can go on or that the cycles are over and that there won't, in the end, be a reckoning for the monetary policies that have been pursued. For Jared Dillian, one thing is certain. Well, there's been a lot of long-term effects. The biggest one that we're still dealing with is distrust of banks in the financial system. And that is probably going to continue for two generations. People, they expect banks to do the wrong thing. And it's unfortunate because I think a healthy economy and a healthy financial system requires a strong banking system. But people don't necessarily see it that way anymore. And that probably won't change for a long time. Jared Dillian, a former trader with Lehman Brothers. The other speakers were Peter Martin, the business and economy editor at The Conversation, Helen Thompson, professor of political economy at Cambridge University, and Richard Holden, professor of economics at the University of New South Wales Business School. Isabella Tropiano is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. Listener.